First John 5. Let's read verses 1 through 5. Let's start out there. First John chapter five, verses one through five says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the father loves everyone who has been born of him. And by this, we know uh, that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that has overcome the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. You know, as we come to the close of first John and we will be closing first John tonight today. Um, once again, John desires that we would know with certainty that believers would know with certainty uh, that they have been born of God, of God, that they have eternal life. And beginning in verse one, John circles back to two key proofs uh, that those who have been born of God have proof that you and I have been born of God. One is faith. One is love. Those are two evidences, two proofs that you have been born again. And so what John is doing here once again is clarifying what faith and love looks like Because you know, Oh, I have faith. How many of you heard that? I've got faith. Yeah. You know, okay, well, great. Even the demons have faith, so to speak. Uh, well, I have love, you know, love is love. Well, no, it's kind of how God defines love to be. And so he says right here off the bat, verse one, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. Two proofs and evidences that we have actually had a transition, a change in our hearts is that we believe upon Jesus and we also love one another. And so a person who's been born again has faith. They believe, right? And that, that belief is centered on the truth about Jesus. That is what it is to be a Christian is to believe in Jesus Christ. And John says that those who are born of God believe something specific about Jesus, that he is the Christ, that he's the Christ. That means he's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. The one whom the prophet said would come, that God would send and would come and redeem Israel and all of the earth from their sin. Anyone who would believe upon him, their sins would be taken away. Jesus is the Christ. So we believe he's the savior. He's the Christ. You know, there are a lot of people, um, some of us have been like this at one time or another, who, who, who will say that they have a deep respect for Jesus. I've heard that this week. Someone said that I have a deep respect for Jesus. He's a great teacher and he taught people, you know, how to love uh, and all this type of stuff and better themselves and, and what have you. Uh, that's very, that's a very uh, worldly way of looking at Jesus. But at the end of the day, what happens is they reject that Jesus is the son of God. They reject that he is from God, that he is the Christ, that he is the savior of the world. Believers believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the one sent by God. And secondly, John says here that a person who is born of God, who believes that Jesus is the Christ, that faith is going to be manifested in love, love for God's kids. That's, it's just, that's just a, a flat out proof that we've been born again, that if we love the father, we're going to be loving his kid believers. And, and it starts out with a love for God, by the way, a love for God. And John says that those who've been born of God not only believe that Jesus is the Christ, uh, we, but we also love the father 
and those believers who are born of him. So we love his kids, right? And so we've heard this over and over again. John's just saying it a different way that we love God and we love one another. And he says there in verse two, by this, we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And so how do you know that we're loving one another? It's kind of like, yeah, yeah, I love people. Really? Do you really love God? Well, God actually gives us a measurement of how we can actually tell whether or not we're loving one another. John says it begins with faith in Christ and a love for God. And, and false teachers can claim that they love God. They can claim love and all this type of stuff. But God actually has a way of defining love for him. You know what it's called? Obedience. How many of you go, oh, <laughs> yeah, this is nothing new, right? John, and so, and so this is, this is, John is just repeating the words of Jesus. Um, you know, we are to keep the commandments of Christ. John in, in, in his gospel, uh, in, in the gospel of John, chapter 14, 15, he was, he was there with Jesus in the upper room. And Jesus says to the disciples says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If, then love. Wow. If you love me, then keep my commandments. Uh, and then John 15, nine, just a, a few, uh, a little bit later in that night, but a few a chapter later, Jesus says again, as the father has loved me. So I have loved you speaking to the disciples. He says, abide in my love, remain in my life. Well, how do you do that? Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Well, what does that look like a little further? Verse 12, John 15 says what? This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Kind of sounds kind of circular, huh? Yeah, it sounds like a Trinitarian type thing. That God is a relationship of love, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And they've invited us into it. And, 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 and we see that the Son uh, came to fulfill the Father's will and he poured out his life for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus died. Now that we are brought into this relationship, we die. We live, we lay down our lives for one another through obedience to the father. This is how it, how it works. And so the way, you know, you're loving one another is when we are obedient to God and his, his commandments can be summed up in two things. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. And that's something God's got to do in and through you. That's a work of God, right? Mark 12, 28 through 21 there for you to go look at that. And John says regarding obeying God commands at the end of verse three, and these, and his commands are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. The commands of God are not burdensome. Is it a little hot in here, everybody? Yes. We've got an overwhelming yes. Make it so. <laughs> in a few minutes, we'll be frozen. So it'll just be awesome. We're in that season where it's either hot or cold. So we're going to play with it a little bit. All right. But the commands of God are not burdensome. Listen, the commands of men, when they warp them are heavy and burdensome. They are. Jesus came to the Jews who had had an interpretation of the law by the religious leaders. That was a weight upon these people that they could not keep. 
And, and that was just an external keeping. The internal keeping was horrible. But Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight, as he looked out on the Jews in Jerusalem who were burdened down under the law as they were interpreted and twisted by the religious leaders, he said to them, come to me. He cries out after praying to the father, says, come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is what? It's easy and my burden is what? Light. The commands of God are not burdensome if we know them properly the way the Lord has put them. The burden of learning from Jesus and obeying him is light. It brings us life. It brings us rest. It brings us joy. Actually, another way of saying it is, is the fruit of the spirit. Paul's talking about the law and all this type of stuff in Galatians chapter five. And he says, if you keep in step with the spirit, if you, if you walk in obedience to God, guess what it's going to be like, you're going to have fruit in your life. And here's what the fruit is like Galatians five twenty two through 24. But the fruit of the spirit is what love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such thing, there is no law as those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. See, walking in obedience to the Lord, it produces fruit in us. Keeping step in the spirit with the Lord, we have love in our hearts. We have joy. We have all the fruits of the spirit, the fruits of of. This is the relationship that God has. This is his very character is being manifested in us and developed in us and overflowing in us. The fruit of the spirit. It's not burdensome to to have love and joy and peace and patience. Do we need a little bit more of that in this world? He's going to make the point that that's the problem with the world. They don't have it because they don't have God. We didn't have it because we didn't have God. And this runs opposite of how the world runs. Because they are lacking all those fruits, lacking faith, lacking love, lacking obedience to the Lord, right? That's the real burden. And when we're not keeping in step with the spirit, man, our hearts are heavy. And they're designed to be that way. They're designed to be that way. Because the Lord says, that's something that's way, way, you're, you're off. Come to me, learn of me. But to follow the Lord obediently, is it's not a burden. Verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except for the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And again, John says that everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world through faith, not just any faith, specific faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 1, John wanted to point out, he reminded us that we believe that he is the Christ. He's the savior. But now he says something a little different, doesn't he? Not only that he's a Christ, that he's the savior, that he's actually the son of God. We believe, Christians believe that Jesus is the son of God. That is what we believe. Again, many like to say Jesus was an angel or a good man or a great teacher, but they do not believe that Jesus is the only begotten son of God. Jesus wasn't just a man. Jesus was 
in the flesh, God in the flesh, but he wasn't just a man. He was the God man, Jesus Christ, the son of God. He wouldn't, didn't just, he wasn't just a guy coming and teaching great things. No, the son of God came into our world. I wrote, he fulfilled the prophecies of old. He performed miracles. The sick were healed. The lepers leaped, the blind saw, the deaf heard, the mute spoke. He exercises his authority over Satan as he cast out demons and freed people from possession, uh, possession and oppression that Satan had brought by his demons. He showed his power over sin, which no man had power over. He forgave people. He told them they were forgiven and he got almost stoned with rocks for it. He raised people from the dead. He had exercised power over nature. He walked on water. He stopped the winds and the waves. This is not an ordinary man. This is the son of God that came and became flesh. He became a man, became flesh. He lived and dwelt among us. And he said to those, those disciples that were around, or, or to the Pharisees, I think, he said, you know, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it again. They thought he was talking about the physical temple, but Jesus was saying, no, you, you, you kill me, which is going to happen here shortly in Jerusalem. But what's going to happen is I will raise myself in three days. And guess what happened? Three days, he rose again. And the Bible also says that the spirit rose Jesus Christ from the dead. The spirit of God rose Jesus Christ from the dead. It also says the father rose Jesus from the dead. So who rose Jesus from the dead? God. Jesus. Father, son, spirit. Amazing. And here's the thing is that this man appeared before 500 witnesses after his resurrection. He appeared to the women. He appeared to the apostles. He appealed to 500 people. And then they watched him ascend to the father. And the angel said, Hey, the way he left is the way he's coming back. That's our Lord. We believe that Jesus is the son of God. Amen. He is a great teacher. Awesome. He did teach people how to love true love. He did brought true life, but let's not under, let's not cut him short. Jesus is the son of God. He overcame the world. He overcame, which we could not in our victory. Our overcoming is through him. Amen. Amen. Now in verse six through 12, John's going to speak of God's testimony about Jesus. And this is a little confusing for me. So just follow along. Uh, Verse six for the ride. If you need to tune out for a second, but (laughs) uh, doing our best here. Verse six, it says, then uh, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and the blood and the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is truth. For there are three that testify the spirit, the water and the blood. And these three agree. What John is saying here, if you could just sum all this up is he's saying there is a heavenly testimony concerning the son of God, that God testified to Jesus in, in, in this way, in the symbols of the water, the blood and the spirit. Let me kind of go explain a little bit now, because it really isn't clear what John is talking about here. He doesn't spell out what the water means or the blood means. We kind of know the spirit though, but he doesn't, we don't really know. There's a lot of different ideas about what he means about this. And so some think that the water symbolizes, uh, symbolize uh, his birth, his physical birth and his physical death. The blood would uh, symbolize his death. So, um, some think, some think that others see both the water and the blood referring here to when the soldier pierced Jesus's side, water and blood came out and that that was a testimony 
of Jesus. Others think that it's referring to Jesus's baptism, baptism of water and the last supper when he took out the cup. And so there's different people who see different things, godly people who see this differently because it's just not clear. Uh, the last one that I will mention, the one that I kind of lean toward is uh, it's pointing towards basically uh, the, his baptism and his death, the water symbolizing his baptism and the blood symbolizing his death. And it kind of makes the most sense to me. And the reason why, if you're following along, is because the Gnostics were teaching that Jesus uh, received the Christ spirit. In other words, he was a man. He was not the son of God. He was a man, but received the Christ spirit at his baptism. And that right before he died, the Christ spirit left. And so he died a man, didn't resurrect. And John, I think, is combating that saying, no, he was born God. He died God. He's the son of God. I think that's what he's saying. So he's combating that. And so the, the, the water baptism, if you remember, the, the father testified of the son. John the Baptist talks about it. There's a bunch of places, but Matthew 3.17 would be one of them to find, find out where Jesus is there. He's baptized and the skies open up and, and the father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He testifies openly. We know that happened again on the Mount of Transfiguration as well. But the father testified of the son, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. At his baptism. So it's quite, I, I kind of think, well, that would be a great, Symbolism for the water there. Another one, uh, basically the, for the blood, I, I believe it refers to his death. I mean, obviously the blood there, right? And we see the testimony of God that Jesus was his son uh, by what happened when Jesus died. Supernatural signs and wonders happened at Jesus's death. Supernatural signs and wonders were happening at Jesus's death. Uh, Matthew's account, chapter 27, verses 51 through 54, if you check it out, uh, it says, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Now this was in the Holy of Holies of the temple. Listen, no one's allowed to go in there except for the high priest. There was a, a temple and basically uh, you had the Gentiles on the outside. And then as you got closer, you had the Israelites who could be there. But then on the inner courts could only be priests. And then as you went into the temple, only certain priests. And then there was a holy of holy places where the Ark of the Covenant was. And it was separated by a veil, a thick veil. And only the priest could go in there once a year. And what happened is upon Jesus's death, according to Hebrews, as you read about the, the picture of this in Hebrews, the veil was torn from top to bottom. Now, if you're a person, you tear it from the bottom to top. God tears it from the top to the bottom. And we learn that Jesus's flesh was torn. His blood was shed. And that made a way for sinful man and God to be together. God's righteous requirement for the sacrifice of sin for the soul that sin shall die. It was paid in full on the cross through his son, through his blood. And so we see that first testimony of the temple. Uh, the veil of the temple was torn. Uh, and, and then also the earth shook. There was an earth that shook everything and rocks were split and the tombs were also opened. This is crazy. Verse 52. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And so there was a, a resurrection and coming out of the tombs after his restoration, they went into the Holy Spirit and appeared to many. And so they were testifying to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then when the centurion who was standing there over Jesus at his death, when he, the centurion and those who were with him, they were keeping watch over Jesus. They saw the earthquake and what took place. They're looking at all this happen. They're freaking out. And what do they say? 
Truly, this was the Son of God. The death of Jesus Christ is a testimony from the Father that he was the Son. And so the water, the blood, and possibly, you know, uh, the water and the blood, possibly Jesus' baptism and his death, all testifying that he was the Son of God. And thirdly, John says that the Spirit of God testified that he was the Christ. And we already went through everything he did, that he was the anointed one. He was the one who was, had the fullness of the Spirit upon him, the sevenfold fullness of the Spirit. Uh, Isaiah 11 talks about in the first few verses there. Uh, He wasn't lacking anything of the Holy Spirit. He was God in the flesh and he performed miracles accordingly and and his authority and his power was exercised over all this stuff. And so he operated in the might and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, but regardless of where you are in your understanding of these few verses here, uh, John's point is in verse nine. He says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God that he has been born concerning his son. In other words, God's testimony is greater than men. And he showed without a doubt that he was the son of God while Jesus was here. And it was written of and testified, but it really happened in real time to all these people. So it's amazing. Verse 10, whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. What does that mean? It means when you come to believe in the truth of Jesus Christ, because of the Holy Spirit testifying to you. See, before we come to the Lord, the Holy Spirit is at work in the world. The Holy Spirit is convicting the world. That means people who don't know the Lord He's convicting us of sin of righteousness. The righteousness of God He's convicting us of our sin, our unholiness, before God, he's convincing us of our, of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that he's the only way. And he's also convicting us of the judgment to come, that there's a judgment coming for the unrighteous. Pretty scary stuff. That's the work that the Holy Spirit does. And why is he doing that? To rub our nose in it? To drive us to who? The Savior, the Spirit testifies of the Son. And so right now, if you are being convicted over your sin. That is a work of the Holy Spirit. And he is driving you to Jesus Christ right now, who bled out and died to make the way for you to to be with God. And God will cleanse you and forgive you in all unrighteousness as you put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. But see, what happens is when we believe upon Jesus, when God does that work in us, what happens is the spirit is no longer just a, outside convincing us. What happens is we're born again of the spirit. The spirit of God comes in us. We now are the temple of the Holy spirit. He's in us and he begins to clean house. Amen. But what happens now is we now have the testimony. This is what the church is. It's a group of people filled with the Holy spirit by God's grace. And we testify to the fact that Jesus Christ is the son of God. He is the savior of the world. Amen. Amen. Why? Because the Holy spirit's in us and he's testifying through us, through our lives and through our doctrine. It's awesome. So whoever believes in the name of the son of God has the testimony in himself. This isn't a testimony we make up. This is the testimony of the spirit. According to the word of God. What about those who don't believe? What about those who reject? 
Keep reading verse 10. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. You know, when a person rejects Jesus and his gospel, they are in effect calling God a liar. Now the people would go, no, I'm not calling God a liar. No, see, God's saying you're calling him a liar. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the opinion you've got to be concerned with. God says, you reject what I have done through my son. You're calling me a liar. When I've testified of my son, when the Holy Spirit's come through and he's convicted you of your sin and you reject Christ, you're calling me a liar. You're saying it's not true. That he isn't the son of God, that he isn't the savior and all these types of things. But this is what a Christian is, a sinner saved by the savior. Amen. The son of God who has given us eternal life by grace through faith. And this is why we preach Christ. This is why we preach Christ, not because we're, we're all of this stuff, but because we believe the truth, because he's come up, he's convinced us of our own sinfulness. He's convinced us of his righteousness and the judgment to come. He's convinced us of the wrath of God coming upon this world. It's either coming upon you or it came upon Christ. You can, you can take one or the other. But we testify that all men must turn from their sin and believe upon Jesus Christ, that he died and rose again, that they may be forgiven freely by God and made righteous, made right before God by grace. God's just flat out love and forgiveness for us in Christ. Whoever has the son who has life and whoever does not have the son does not have life, John says. <clears throat> now, real quickly, scooting along. Now in verses 13 through 17, John's going to reaffirm the believer's eternal security. He's going to reaffirm our security by giving us another evidence that we have eternal life. He says there in verses 13 through 15 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know that you have eternal life. I love that. God doesn't just keep it a mystery. You can know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence we have towards him. Well, what's one of the evidences? He's been doing this all along, but he gives us another one. That if we ask anything according to his will, guess what? He hears us. The God who made the heavens and the earth. You've come into relationship through him by grace, through faith in Jesus. And he's brought you in that you may be dependent upon him and that you may ask of him and that he may answer you. Isn't that wild? And if we, verse 15, if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we asked of him. One of the proofs that we have eternal life is that God answers the prayers of his kids. Think about it, parents. And John is just basically repeating what Jesus has already said in that upper room. And basically first John is just an exposition of John 13, 14, 15. <clears throat> but think about it, parents. When do you answer your kids' requests? When it's good for the, when it's according to your will. <laughs> Amen. Now we're, this is a fallen analogy, right? <clears throat> and when it bless, when it's, turns out to be for their blessing. Right? And so we've been brought into this relationship with God where 
We're not going to worry about his motives. They're perfect. And so when we ask our father, we can expect that if it's according to his will, he'll answer it according to his will. This is what prayer is about. Prayer is primarily concerned with the will of God being accomplished because that's what the children of God desire. Parents, is that not what you want your kids to do? Concerned about your will, and if your will is about God's will, may it be done, may it be so. Amen? You want, and, and in that, they find joy. And in that, we find joy, accomplishing God's will. So one of the proofs we have of eternal life is that God answers our prayers when we pray according to his will. John 15, 7 through 8. <clears throat> Again, that upper room, beautiful chapter. Jesus said to the disciples, says in verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Who's he talking to? His disciples. What does he say? If my word's in you, guess what? Ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. How many of you are so depressed over your prayer life? Yeah. This is, I just want to give you the cheat notes right here. Um, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. Why? By this, what happens? My father is what? He's glorified. He desires that you would ask according to his will and answer it as his kids. Why? It brings him glory. That's what he's created you for. He's created me for is to be in this relationship where we are dependent upon him and we ask of him according to his will. And he answers and we have this love that's given to us in this answer. Father redeems, redeemed us to be in this relationship where we ask of him and it glorifies him. And again, the context of prayer of a believer is that God's will would be done. So we're blessed to be able to go to the Father and pray. Now, as we trust in Christ and we follow him obediently and love one another, uh, uh, one of the ways that that love is going to be manifested is, is the manifestation of the love of God. John gives an example of this manifestation of the love of God is in verses 16 and 17. So he's kind of connecting the previous thought of prayer. You can ask whatever you want. And now he gives us a practical example of asking according to his will. Okay? Verse 16. says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God and, and he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Amen. Uh, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that, but all wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. Thank you, John. Clears that up. Appreciate it. <laughs> I, I, I know I didn't do a great job reading it in just regular English, but it's not any clearer to me. This is difficult to understand, church. This is difficult to understand. I just want to lay that out there that really, we, we, there's a lot of thoughts about what this means. But what we do know is God, the idea is that God tells us to pray for brothers and sisters, uh, a brother or sister uh, who sins, and that sin's not leading to death. We know that it's God's will to pray for a brother or sister in sin. And that sin is not leading to death. And you should start asking questions right now. What does leading to death mean? Right. And John says the same, at the same time, we're not to pray for those who are committing sins leading to death. So let's move on. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, you wonder why I go crazy in my office for hours. I don't know. <laughs> the problem is that we really don't know what John means by these. Regarding sins leading to death. Either John is speaking about non-believers here, which means he's using the word brothers loosely. But that doesn't make sense because he's been using brothers all along as like, hey, brothers, brother, beloved, right? But anyways, either John's speaking about non-believers who have blasphemed the Holy Spirit and will not be forgiven. That's one thing. Or John is possibly speaking to believers who are under the discipline of God. And it doesn't make a difference what you ask. God's going to, God's taking them home. Don't ask for that. Hopefully this leads you with a lot of questions about the nature of God and what we're to pray. Cause I don't know. So in either case, God's not going to answer prayer for those two categories, whatever they are. The problem is that we don't know who these people are, nor do we have the discernment. And so we're missing some information that apparently John didn't need to clarify because his readers understood. They knew. Here we are. But these situations are not the norm. And and it seems like John's saying, hey, listen, brothers and sisters are going to sin. Pray for them. But there's another situation. You guys know about this. Obviously, it wouldn't be. You don't want to pray against God's will. It's something they all understood. And so he's just saying a practical manifestation of God's love is to pray for one another when we sin. And when we do sin, and we do as believers, John says here several times that if we sin, guess what? We In 1 John 1, 9, we have an advocate with the Father, right? We confess our sins, and he is faithful to cleanse us and forgive us of all unrighteousness. It's not saying we're sinless. We see this over and over in 1 John. He's never saying we're sinless. But it's a proof that we have been born again when we pray for one another. And it says that then God gives that person life. I think of Matthew 18. I think of Matthew 18 when when we sin against one another, when we see a brother in sin, um, we often go, okay, we need to go to them right? We see that we go to them first, then we bring two people and then three people. But what else are we supposed to be doing during that process? Praying. And John's saying, pray for them. Pray for them, pray for them, pray for them. And God will give them life. He'll grant them repentance. He'll bring them to, bring them to conviction of, hey man, you're off track and come back to the Lord. Amen. So I think that's the heart here. He convicts that brother or sister that's in sin and causes them to repent and come back into fellowship and experience the life of God again. That's the proof. We'd pray for one another. But verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Sounds like a contradiction. Give me one second. Now, really quickly, John's finishing the letter. He's going to do this in verses 18, 19, 20. He's going to give us three we knows. He's going to give us three we knows. Because he's dealing with the the cult of Gnosticism, which is alive and kicking today under guys like Richard Rohr and all these other people. Gnosticism. Basically that idea of, of just the secret knowledge that you attain and all this kind of strange stuff. 
but he combats them with three truths. This is what we know. And so he's just kind of hammering home the points to, to Christians. And the first thing is that those who have been born of God, they don't keep on sinning. The Gnostics said it doesn't make a difference how you live, what you do, as long as you say you're spiritual or, or, or get the secret knowledge. In other words, what you believe doesn't affect what you do. John's saying that's a lie. When you come to know God, your life changes. There's some, you change. There's a change from the inside out. When it says that we do not keep on sitting, it does not mean you do not sin. That's not what he's talking about. He's already talked about that. He says the pattern of sin, the power of sin is broken in your life because the Holy Spirit is in your heart. And what happens is when you sin, he convicts you. And if you do not listen, he'll make your life miserable until you repent. And when you repent, you come back to the joy. Amen. Non-believers don't have that conviction. They stay in their sin. They're, they're captured by their sin. And that is because they're under the power of the evil one. But see, as we come to the Lord, we're no longer under the power of the evil one. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We've become unborn again into born again. We've become believers. We're now children of God. And and now God protects us and the evil one does not touch us. Amen. It says there in John earlier that Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. The devil was keeping us bound in sin. So we were once disobedient and slaves to sin until Christ came and made you alive, made me alive. If that has not happened, he says, you're not born again. But the very fact that you are convinced, let me just say this, the very fact that you're hoping that you're not the person in the previous verses who's had that sin that leads to death shows that the Holy Spirit's in you and working, and that isn't the case, at least for the first part. I know, sorry. If it's all in my head, you could be sinning and God's going to take you out, and that's a different situation. But I know, it's true, it's fun. Sorry, it's, 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 it's in here, but it's not out here. I understand. But what marks an unbeliever is in unbroken sin, unre no, no repentance, uh, no sensitivity to God, <clears throat> and all those types of things. When it comes down to it, we choose darkness over light. That's, that's the nature of man. That's the nature of the fallen person that he's describing the difference between here. The non-believer doesn't have that conviction of the Holy Spirit. But believers have been saved from the penalty of sin and its power because Christ protects us. He works in us. That's what sanctification is, church. He, he paid for the penalty, and now the power of the Spirit is he's making you more like Christ every day. The power of sin over your life, over my life, is becoming less and less and less as God arises in us. Amen? And I can't wait for the day, for that final day, when he shouts and, and, and either I go home to see him or we go up to see him or however he works that out, when we're going to be gone from the presence of sin, not inside of us and not around us. That is, that is awesome. This kingdom where righteousness dwells. Can't wait. But he's protecting us till that day. Verse 19, another we know. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies and the power of the evil, evil one. Christians are a distinct group. This is the church. The word church means the called out ones. 
we know as believers that God was not our idea. And if you do think that, you're going to find out that it wasn't as you grow in the Lord. That we all, like sheep, have gone astray. That we've all gone after our own things, but God busted into our universe. The light invaded darkness. He called upon us and dragged us out. I love that. He gave us the gospel of his glorious son. And that we know statement, he says here, he says, we know that we're from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Listen, that's, that's not a, like a, a pride statement. That's a, that's a grace statement. It's something God did because we were all of the world. Hopeless, no way to get out, but he came. So this is not a, you know, look at them. No, we were all them. Amen? And we understand the struggle of the, of the, of the old man inside. Again, the world is a, a way of the Bible describing all the unredeemed people under the power of the enemy, the power of the influence of the enemy, and who are beheld by sin. And that's manifested in the philosophies and the governments and all these types of things that are fallen around us, fallen forms of government and all this stuff. It's all influenced by the enemy. Ephesians 2, just the first few verses, 1 through 3, describes what the world was and, and, and what it actually looks like to be under the power of the enemy. Real good place to look for this. There's other places, but this is the most vivid one. Remember back to your lives, church. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, you practiced, following the course of this world. Following who? The prince of the power of the air. Following Satan. Oh, well, I wasn't following Satan. Yes, you were. (laughs) The spirit that now is at work in the sons of who? disobedience. That's what our life was marked by. Among whom we all once lived. And here Paul jumps in there and says, listen, just in case you think you're self-righteous. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We were alienated from God like the rest of mankind. And then someone read the next verse. I mean, but God, who is rich in mercy, or one of those verses, it's just God intervenes. Beautiful. So the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. That's another truth. But we are from God by grace. Verse 20, another we know. This is the last one John's going to give. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. John puts the exclamation point on who Jesus is there in that verse. John finishes by declaring what we know about the Son of God. The Son of God has come to give us understanding, not this mystical, weird understanding, but true understanding. He showed us who the Father was. He has come that we may know him who is true, that is God the Father. And lastly, we know that Jesus is, uh, well, that we're in him and he is in us. So we have a relationship. But lastly, we know that Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life, period. Jesus is God. John ends his first letter where he began in his gospel. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. Verse 14. And the, word, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
So we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the true God. And then he ends with this little little line, verse 21. What does he say there? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. I'm out. (laughs) You guys love that or what? (laughs) But think about it. Whenever you see something weird like that, you what's it there for? Why is it there? John, what are you saying? What is he talking about? Idolatry. What is an idol? A what kind of God? Who is he just talking about? The true God. John says, keep yourself from idols. This old, old man, 90-something years old, walked with the Lord. But in one sense, John says, real quickly, he says to keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself from idols. In one sense, we're all called to keep ourselves from idols. We're to be vigilant regarding those things. We're to watch out about for those who are coming and teaching falsely about Jesus. We're to be those who would go to the word and study it and find out who he declares himself to be, right? But on the other hand, in another sense, it's the Lord who protects us from that idolatry. It's the Lord who protects us. It's the Lord who keeps us. Both are parallel truths. The Lord calls us to keep ourselves, and yet we find out that he's keeping us. Isn't that awesome? I love how this truth is magnified. Let's go to flip over to the book of Jude. It's only one chapter. We're only going to read a couple verses, and we're out. Jude, verses 20 through 21, talking about keeping yourselves. Keep yourselves from idols. Here Jude says what? But you, beloved, verse 20, only one chapter. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. You're building yourself up in the most holy faith and you're praying in the Spirit. What does he say there in verse 21? Keep yourselves in the love of God while you're waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that it leads to eternal life. Keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself from idolatry. Be vigilant. I get nervous about my ability to keep myself good. But nevertheless, he says it. Verse 24 through 25, just keep going down. Now to him who is what? Able to what? Keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You know, may the Lord keep our eyes on the true God, upon Jesus. Amen. To the glory of the Father. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for what you've given us and taught us. Protect us from the evil one and the lies that he would seek to Give us that we would go after some other Jesus. Thank you for your word. It makes it clear who he is, the son of God, the Christ, the true God, our Savior. Thank you for sending him into our our world of rebellion and darkness and forgiving us eternal life through faith in him, forgiving us of our deep sin against you and one another for putting your love in our hearts for one another and for you, for teaching us to obey you and to follow you, for being gentle with us and long-suffering and kind. 
and for giving us the promise of eternal life that can never be taken away. Just praise you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness. Bless this little church. Bless all the other believers here in the valley and in your church at large, God. Keep them tight, Lord, with you. and Combat the lie with the truth, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.